You're listening to an ACA podcast. Um, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the boomerang as the traditional owners, uh, sovereign uh, custodians and ongoing carers of the land um, upon which we meet. Um, and I'd like to pay respects to elders past, present and emerging and any First Nations um, people who join us this evening. So we are pleased to welcome Eugenia Lim for her Common Knowledge uh, lecture tonight, which will explore the space between the personal and the geopolitical, selfhood and sovereignty, through the questions, how does architecture shape identity? How do artists, architects, power brokers, nation states, immigrants and insurgents make and mark territory? In this lecture, Eugenia will draw on her research, archives, and experiences in relation to her latest project called The Australian Ugliness. This project included an exhibition and public programs at the Melbourne School of Design at the University of Melbourne uh, in July and August this year. It paid homage to the modernist architect Robin Boyd and his book of the same name, while transporting his ideas on kitsch and decorative taste of post-war Australia into our contemporary context. In this work, Eugenia Lim questions modernity's legacies and how it might shape us through our environment. Eugenia's focus focused on, the, on exploring ne Neptune's fishbowl from 1970, and um, it's a fish and ship show, and she will tell you a bit more um, about uh, that. And she created a three-channel video installation which brought forward a female performative and Asian-Australian perspective on the screens and spaces of Australia. And before I welcome our guest uh, speaker tonight, I would like to thank the Melbourne Gin Company for creating uh, this best book cocktail, which is called Beach Days. And I also uh, would like to thank our presenting partner, Abercrombie & Kent, as well as our event partners, the City of Melbourne, Starwood, Cappy, and our media partners, the Saturday Paper, Triple R, and Broadsheet. And now I'd like to introduce Eugenia. Eugenia is an artist who works across video, performance, and installation. Eugenia is a current artist in residence at Gertrude Contemporary, and her work has been exhibited internationally at the Tate Modern in London, uh, Gallery of Modern Art in Brisbane, Acme, um, Hunt Gallery in New York, as well as many other others. Eugenia works um, very much at the intersection between art and society, uh, often placing collaboration and the artistic community um, at the center of her work. Uh, she co-founded Tate Projects, um, and also she was the founding editor of, and also current editor at large of Asimon Papers and its issue um, launched on the weekend. So please join me in making uh, Eugenia welcome. Ooh, darkness, I like that, great. Um, thank you, Annabelle, and thanks, uh, Aka, for having me and for everyone attending tonight. Um, I too would like to begin by acknowledging that we meet on the Yalakut Wheelam land of the Boon people. Sovereignty was never ceded and I pay my respect to the First Australians, Indigenous elders past, present and future, and any First Nations peoples here tonight. Um, in my work, I look at territory and how we decide who has the right to inhabit space. I'm interested in contested space, which is just about everywhere in this volatile age, not least here in Australia. As someone with Chinese heritage, I'm fascinated by China's rapid construction of man-made islands, and um, this is one from the South China Seas. 
how islands are dredged and reclaimed into being, and what this means in our era of ge geopolitical pivots and rising oceans. And in the past few years, islands have become an ongoing site of inquiry in my work. Islands as man-made earthworks and as sites of isolation, expansionism, militarization, exploitation and dehumanization. And as Australians, we detain those who seek refuge in our country on islands. We outsource human suffering offshore. We draw hard lines around our borders and around our hearts. We, we pay corporations to build fortresses around women, children and men for an undefined length of time. Difficult things are put out of sight as a strategy to help us live with ourselves. We outsource cooking, chores and driving to a growing precariat. We glad wrap meat so it becomes a convenient everyday thing, easy to consume, easy to forget about its provenance as the living, breathing thing it once was. We enjoy efficiency and comfort while others live for an eternity on islands. In my work, I want to break apart how we live to better understand how political, social, economic and cultural systems intersect. My work keeps me active and hopeful in a world that it's imploding. To quote Sydney artist Deborah Kelly, my work is about forgetting to forget. Um, this is an image from Deborah Kelly's 2009 work, Tank Man Tango. Um, and it was made on the 20th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre. And Deborah put online a choreography which was sort of based around this really famous image of the tank man um, standing up to tanks um, after the massacre happened in, in China. And she made this video readily available so that people in, I think, you know, all around the world, I think it was danced by people in 20 cities, could come together and kind of dance this memorial, she called it a memorial to living, um, memorial of living bodies to the event. And I wanted to play um, the instructions and then kind of, yeah, show you a couple of images of the dance as well. Legs together, look ahead, swing your bag, fall back. Legs together, look ahead, swing your bag, fall back. Stand and stare, stare them down, count to eight. Two skips left. Pump the air. Bags down. Turn right. Left. Right. Left. Together. Step left. Step right. Bags up front. Lunge. And hold. Spin left. Rise up. Jump back. Step left. Step around. Step right. Step left. Legs together. Look ahead. Swing your bag, fall back, legs together, look ahead, swing your bag, fall back, stand and stare, stare them down, count to eight. Two skips left, punch the air, bags down, turn right, left, right, left, together, step left and right, bags up front, lounge and hold, spin left, rise up, 
Jump back, step left, step around, step right, step left. So the inspiration for the work came from Kelly's chance meeting with a woman from Shanghai who was convinced that the Tiananmen Square massacre never actually happened and that the images of the incident were actually digital manipulations released by the US to show China as an oppressive force. Kelly says, I was so amazed that history could be so thoroughly erased and I wanted to restore it and bring it back to life. So this is um, a couple of images of the dance. Um, so it took place simultaneously in 20 cities um, from Weimar in, in Germany to Warrnambool. And here I think we've got Leipzig on the left and this is um, an intervention action at the Sydney Opera House as well. Um, and I guess for me, I'm really, I, I guess I love this idea of the resonance that this work created and that, um, you know, I guess kind of making these instructions accessible as a way that uh, many people from all walks of lives, from different cultures could, could come together and remember something as significant as this. Um, and before this action, Deborah Kelly was one of, I think, six artists who founded a collective called Boat People in 2001. Um, and they formed in the wake of the Tampa crisis, which um, was, yeah, in 2001. Um, and the work here that you see, um, a 15 metre tall projection onto the sails of the Opera House, was inspired by an Aboriginal woman telling Deborah Kelly that all non-Indigenous Australians are effectively boat people. Um, so the Tampa affair, people may remember, um, was when John Howard, the then Prime Minister, denied entry into Australian waters for the, um, the, Tampa, the Tampa, a Norwegian cargo ship. And this crisis led to Howard's Pacific Solution, which is where um, islands like Manus and Nauru uh, are sort of, you know, the scene of this ongoing so-called solution. And then fast forward to last week, and the Opera House is alive as ever as a site of um, a kind of battleground, a battle for our identity. And this time the sails were not lit up for humanity, but for horse racing. Um, and I, interestingly enough, in a country that sort of has already the highest rate of, of gambling in the world, I think 80% of adults in Australia gamble. Um, and this is what Walid Ali has to say on the matter. You'd be forgiven for thinking that we're in the middle of a debate about whether the Sydney Opera House should be used as a billboard to advertise a horse race, but actually we're not. Instead, what we're doing is sharing our opinions after the fact about a decision that had already been made and a deal that had already been done without any input from annoying people like you and me, like citizens. And Polly's on both sides just can't see what the fuss is about. It's just common sense, and I don't know why people are getting so precious about it. I'm absolutely confident it's the right thing to do. I think we can use uh, our greatest uh, landmarks and symbols of Sydney to promote tourism here. It is reasonable that we promote major events in Sydney. And you know what? I actually believe that they believe it, but that's the problem. In the community, we might have differing views on this Opera House thing, but if you didn't realise that co-opting our most famous national icon to promote a big money horse race that didn't even exist two years ago was always going to piss off a lot of people, you'd have to be seriously out of touch. And sadly, that seems to be exactly where our politicians are. We know this 
because this kind of thing keeps happening. Last year, the Victorian Labor government gave permission for part of Melbourne's beloved Federation Square to be torn down to make room for an Apple store. There was no public consultation process, no projected costings, we were simply informed of it. Premier Daniel Andrews even boasted about it on his Facebook page. Q, massive public backlash. I'm a big fan of yours, DA, but this is a terrible decision. What the hell are you doing, mate? Sorry, Dan, but giving up public space to a global corporation is uncool. Andrews never saw it coming, but they never do, because our politicians see your public spaces as assets to be sold off simply because some really powerful industry or some mega corporation would really like to buy it. So when Scott Morrison says this... Why not put it on the biggest billboard Sydney has? You mightn't be surprised, and you might think, well, that's what you would expect from someone who used to run Tourism Australia, who launched this definitely not embarrassing ad campaign. So where the bloody hell are you? <laughs> where the bloody hell are you? Um, this is an image from, I guess, my intervention into the same site. It's a production still from The Australian Ugliness, which is what... I'll be showing some excerpts and talking about tonight. Um, I guess, yeah, as you can see, I feel like this site and this building and these kind of icons of Australian architecture, they remain really alive to this kind of um, battleground between, I suppose, yeah, um, on the one hand, um, an expansive idea of who we are as a nation and one that's, you know, kind of a shared vision and on the other, um, I guess, this sense of, you know, these icons being for sale or us being seen as um, consumers now more than citizens. So when I make my videos, I pretty much shoot on location, so um, like this one. Um, I don't employ extras, and aside from um, costuming, I like a bit of gold. I work with what's already out there. What unfolds between me, everyday people, the weather and architecture is unrehearsed, but it feels like a kind of live choreography that unfolds on camera and in that moment, and as these, in, these elements kind of intersect with each other. So I feel like no other building has come to define our self-image as this one, and that's why it was a crucial site for me to engage with in the making of this work. It's as alive today as a site of our culture wars as it was in the late 60s when architect Jörn Ertzen resigned after, after the new Conservative government made his position untenable. The Opera House represents an exercise in nation building that Australia wasn't ready for at the time. It was unveiled in 1973 by the Queen and Ertzen wasn't invited to the opening and his name wasn't even mentioned at the ceremony. The building's not the perfection that Ertzon envisaged, but even compromised, it's our proudest and most progressive architectural icon. In cinema, popular culture, and collective imagination, it's a symbol of our nation. But that nation is one that's divided between mediocrity, self-interest, and small-mindedness, and on the other, a belief in civic culture and identity that goes beyond borders, back pockets, and election cycles. I'll play a few minutes now from this scene and a bit before when the ambassador goes up to Sydney to see what happens.
So um, I guess in the thinking about how I might start to make a work like this, I found a framework um, for a beginning in Robin Boyd's book, The Australian Ugliness, which was written in 1960. And whether you've read it or not, or whether you're an architect or not, it remains a really enduring point of entry into a conversation about architecture and about who we are, and how these things have sort of shifted from that time, um, or how they've remained the same. The first time I read The Australian Ugliness, it was the height of summer, a few years back. And I was staying in a suburban style house in a town called Mount Beauty, and the aircon was full tilt. The January heat seeped into plaster and, uh, and timber. And I remember being struck at the time, even despite the heat, at the politic of Boyd's writing, the way he linked the design and ornamentation of our built environment to the way we see and understand ourselves. I didn't really know how I'd approach it yet, but I knew I wanted to make a work that continued this line of thinking. So I set out on a self-guided tour of Australian architecture and I hit lots of books. I talked to lots of architects. I did lots of recce's around buildings in Melbourne, um, including out the front here and I spent lots of time at Robin Boyd's home, um, Wall Street in South Yarra. And I guess much like the study of art history and global history at large, I discovered an overwhelmingly male, Anglo-American and Eurocentric perspective, a perspective that renders others invisible or marginal at best. So if architecture is the reimagining of the world as human, what do our buildings say about us? In his polemic book, Robin Boyd merged architectural and human skins, suggesting that the way we mask or distract in our built environment is an allegory for ourselves. Boyd saw our tendency towards the kitsch, the macho and the superficial as a symptom of the deeper aesthetic and ethical gap in our national psyche. He called this love of the mediocre or the cosmetic featurism. And in the book he writes, the ugliness I mean is skin deep, but skin is as important as its admirers like to make it, and Australians make much of it. This is a country of many colorful patterned plastic veneers, of brick veneer villas and the white Australia policy. 50 years on, we're much more self-aware and globalised, but I'd say that featurism is still there. It's on the facades of our civic icons and when we allow sponsors to project onto them as billboards. Tastes have changed. Boyd didn't live to see postmodernism, but featurism as an act of cloaking, masking and forgetting is still alive. Here's some examples, I think. Um, this is on Smith Street. Um, and what else have we got? There's a few more here. I'd say that featurism is still practiced as something that masks the colonial fiction of terra nullius, of indigenous subjugation, of our treatment of refugees, and a culture that still privileges the male, the moneyed, and the monumental. As an Australian who's none of these things, my work continues Boyd's line of thinking, but from a radically different time and perspective. Growing up in Australia, I was kind of, I guess, used to being judged on what was skin deep, colour of my skin, the shape of my eyes, 
used to really annoy me, and it used to really annoy me when people would tell me that my English was good, for example, and still get that sometimes. But now, performing in my work, I guess I've, I've come to see skin as a kind of screen, something that is able to be uh, kind of a permeable surface where history, culture and identity are fluid. So my Australian Ugliness project is an attempt to make space for people who can feel excluded from the process of city making, nation building, design and architecture, but yet are the very people who use and inhabit these spaces daily. My take on ugliness asks, who holds the right to design our spaces and who are they designed for? Who shapes our built environment and in turn, how do these forces shape us? Now for a bit of inspo. The first is um, Jacques Tati's Playtime, which I'm obsessed with and I keep watching um, on a regular basis and keep returning to. And in the scene that I'm gonna show you, um, Monsieur Hulot, who's the main character, is played by Tati, the filmmaker, um, and he's sort of trying and failing to make it to a job interview in a very high-tech, modernist corporation, so I'll watch a little bit. Monsieur Giffard, Düsseldorf au téléphone.
feel like you've been that person. <laughs> I definitely do. Um, so Playtime was uh, released in 1967 and it was shot on a totally constructed set of Paris. So um, everything you see is constructed. Uh, it was made by I think a crew of 100 workers and it had its own power plant to run. Um, it was grossly over budget, I think nearly bankrupted the filmmaker. Um, but it's this incredible work, I think. Um, to save costs, I think some of the sets and the exteriors and some of the cast as well are actually um, giant photographs, which is kind of ingenious. So I guess, um, I guess this sort of, this humour is definitely something that I love and I return to and this sense that um, I guess Hulot and Tati is trying to caution, I guess, at modernity, you know, what is the kind of space for unpredictability and for, um, you know, I guess, you know, things to go beyond the path of least resistance. I guess his bumbling figure is this sort of um, a way of thinking about, you know, maybe fighting back against efficiency or fighting back against, um, you know, streamlining and, and modernity. Um, I also love the soundtrack as well. Um, it's something that I guess I brought into my own work. Um, these heightened noises of, I guess, the built environment, um, footsteps on hard uh, concrete surfaces and the sigh of the sofa as he presses it in. Um, and the idea that I guess a lot is conveyed but without language, so the dialogue is kind of reduced to background noise and it's something that I think no matter where you're from you could kind of... Uh, get a feel for the, the kind of themes within it. And as in his film Mon Oncle, which was made before this one, Tati challenges Le Corbusier's notion, and I think the modernist notion, that the house and the city are machines for living. His figure trips up against modernity and sidesteps, you know, I guess this idea of efficiency, escaping the machine before it becomes a prison of conformity. Another work I looked at in the making of my own was um, a video work called Quarry by the American artist Amy Siegel. Um, and this work traces the kind of provenance of um, marble as a material and I guess um, the sort of uh, the provenance of value as well um, in, our, in our capitalist culture. So these are just some stills from the work. I think you can view it online on Vimeo. So first we start in this um, cave-like quarry in Vermont in the States and then we move to marble as it's seen in the kind of luxury high-end um, apartments of Manhattan. And I guess I really love this tracing, this idea that um, just by following the kind of cycle of a material we can kind of start to see... Um, yeah, how value is sort of produced and, and how, I guess, speculative, you know, speculative value can kind of um, be produced through, you know, marketing, aspiration, luxury, these kinds of things. So I guess when I saw this work, it made me think about how I might be able to trace the life cycle of architecture as well in my own work. And it started to help me think about um, looking at the sites of architecture. So from, you know, an architecture office to 
uh, a university, to suburbia, to private homes and to civic spaces. So it started to give me an idea of, okay, maybe there's a trajectory that I can follow here. Um, to now play another clip from my work and a bit of background. So in the work, I visit about 30 odd locations around Australia and the ambassador character that you see shapeshifts. So sometimes she's a cleaner, other times she's an Asian property investor, um, other times she's a student of architecture. Um, I guess in a way looking at the different roles we have within these spaces and also trying to sort of unravel a bit the expectations when we see an Asian face on screen as well. Um, but in this section, I think that we don't see much of the ambassador. We're looking, we're starting um, in Tower Gophers Brutalist Public Housing Project Sirius in Sydney. Some of you might be familiar with it. It's a site that like, I guess, you know, like its counterpart, the Opera House is sort of a site of the culture wars. Um, it's a site where all of the residents have been moved out and the property is now for sale to private developers um, so that the New South Wales government can make some cash. But we were really lucky to be able to film in um, the home of Myra, Myra Dimitriou, who is a 91-year-old resident who was the last remaining resident there. Um, and to have access to a space, I guess, um, at a moment in time that won't be around anymore. So we start there and then we head to a property showroom um, in the Docklands before we head out further to a, a toilet block designed by BKK on the way to Craigie Burn. So I'll just play a bit of this.
So I'm interested in the relationship between architecture, real estate, equity and livability and what happens when the Australian dream becomes developer-driven rather than architect-led. The work can, considers the limits of architecture, where are architects absent, um, maybe spaces like this. Curator and architect Rory Hyde observes that today architecture is absent from the suburbs of Australia. And he says, hitching its wagon to the boutique luxury apartment market of the inner ring. Could these issues be addressed with a new small home service for today? What would such a program look like? And if he were here now, what would Boyd do? And this was the original small home service, which was launched in 1947. Um, it was a joint initiative of The Age and the Royal Victorian Institute of Architects with Robin Boyd as its director. It gave um, everyday Victorians access to architectural plans for houses for just five pounds, and it was a world first at the time. Boyd himself estimated that at its height, around 40% of new homes in Melbourne were built through the small home service. But today, instead of the small home service, we have The Block, Australia's highest rating TV show. Housing is now a commodity, and the goal is to renovate and flip for the highest return. Neoliberalism as popular entertainment and commercial TV station as property speculator. Real estate's not something that's sort of seen as seductive or worthy of intellectual thought, but I guess I'm interested in it because I feel like it's the thing that most shapes our cities and our suburbs and ourselves in some ways. And in terms of contemporary art and the relationship between contemporary art and real estate, I guess that's kind of more entwined than most artists like to think about. So first come the working class, then immigrants, then artists, and then cafes, galleries, nightlife. And in the rise and fall of suburbs and cities, the good, the bad and ugly of gentrification follows. The cycle begins again, the next postcode out. In his book, How Buildings Learn, Russell Brand talks about the tension in our streets and suburbs between use value, house as home, and market value, house as property, and the beigeness of property-driven property home improvements. And he says of these developments, seeking to be anybody's house, it becomes nobody's. Let me set the scene for what really lies ahead this season. And for that, I will need my old-time voice. <coughs> this grand old dame was built in 1937, and by gosh, she's certainly seen her fair share of wear and tear. But as of today, five teams will change all that as they embark on the challenge of a lifetime. Oh, my God. The block is a beast. It's 24-7. To turn this old dump is harder than what we thought. We're not afraid of hard work. Into multi-million dollar apartments. This is huge. It just goes on forever. And of course, at some point, as always happens, they will all lose their nanas. Don't shake your head at me like I that, mate. I didn't shake my head. Stop it. I'm allowed to have an opinion. They hammered us. There's a gun range. And we're the targets. It just can't go on like this. He's dead to us. They're targeting us. We don't want you to use this I'm actually quite happy to leave. Now you've got to block first with us leaving. 
You walk out of there, pack your bags and keep walking. something to aspire to, isn't it? Um, so it wasn't quite the block, but I undertook my own building project with this project. Um, and it started from, I guess, this uh, image of a fish and chips shop by Robin Boyd, which was um, finished in 1970 in South Yarra. Um, and there were supposed to be 200 of these around Australia. It was supposed to be a homegrown kind of rival to McDonald's or KFC. Um, but there was only ever this one, which is kind of a really... It's a curiosity, I guess, in Boyd's, um, in Boyd's history. And it maybe sort of gives an indication of what might have happened if Boyd had lived on to sort of see postmodernism or what he might be making today. Um, and it's sort of this strange utopian architecture from, um, you know, I guess one of our nation's biggest proponents of modernism. So it's a really kind of interesting structure. And in my project, I worked with um, an architectural practice called Wawawa, and they sort of had this idea to revive this structure and bring it back. So here's a couple of lads um, from Kane Constructions, who are a big um, construction company. They've just finished the M Pavilion down the road. Um, they're loving it because they don't really get to make weird stuff like this that only stays up for, I don't know, like a month or so. Um, and it's out at their warehouse in Laverton. And then on site, this is us sort of building and constructing the fishbowl um, within the gallery at MSD. And I guess, you know, I was talking before about this idea of the trajectory or the life cycle of architecture. This project sort of gave me an insight into what it is to sort of be a client, to sort of commission something, um, to kind of tear your hair out about not having any budget <laughs> and sort of trying to pull off something all along. Um, and it was kind of fascinating to sort of try and talk about these things but also try and make something at the same time. Um, and this is the installation um, when it was finished, so you can see it through the window at the Melbourne School of Design. And then the three channels of the video that you're watching tonight were shown um, as separate screens inside. And the yellow, of course, is drawn from Old Mate, who's just outside here, the vault, um, otherwise known as Yellow Peril. And it's a colour, I guess, and a structure, like a geometric shape that I keep coming back to in my work because it's sort of so embedded in the built environment um, of Melbourne, of Australia, and on occasion even within Asia as well. And for John Denton of DCM, the, the yellow vault is something that they keep coming back to in their architecture because for them it's a sign that design culture has won or it wins in the end. Um, and you can see it in much of the architecture of their work and even in the super tram stops along Swanson Street. I was riding down and I was like, yep, still there, still going strong. Um, the cheese sticks, Melbourne Gateway. And here is John Denton on the left and Ron Roberts and Swan on site, you know, having a, a deep and meaningful about the structure. And another practice who's used, um, I guess, you know, the geometric sort of shape or the colour of vault is Ashton Raggett McDougall, ARM. Um, this is an unbuilt uh, addition to Iatsis in Canberra, which is one of um, the locations in my work as well. 
And Howard Raggett, who's one of the directors of ARM, calls Vault an obsession. To us, it's almost become a typology. We use it as plonkart in our proposals. Raggett says any setting anywhere in the world re requiring a public art proposal gets a yellow peril, Asia included. Um, so going back to the source, where the vision for Yellow Peril began, here is the ambassador intervening um, into the office of DCM Architects. I guess I was interested in inserting myself into these spaces where a lot of the history of, um, you know, I guess architecture and contemporary um, architecture sort of come from. And I suppose um, the idea was to sort of give myself a seat at the table in retrospect or something like that. Um, so the work, I guess one of the underlying themes is this idea of, um, you know, who, yeah, who designs our, our spaces and, and I guess not seeing anyone like myself really reflected in that process. On a panel about women in architecture, Camilla Block, who's the principal of Durback Block Jagers in Sydney said, architecture is a shared and learnt language, but apart from Lena Bobardi, all my architectural loves are men. She calls for a new androgynous bedrock for architecture that sees all people as equal. And I guess in this work, I was wanting to open up this discussion and sort of think about why have there been so few women architects or people of colour um, in the history of architecture? The Pritzker Prize has only been won, I think, by one, one woman, Zaha Hadid, in that whole time. And we've got a, a slide here from Parla, who are an amazing, um, I guess, advocacy group for gender equity in architecture. Um, we can see sort of down the bottom here that only 13% of architecture practices are owned by women. And the sort of dismal statistics that the profession is, I think, trying to um, be vocal about and be active about, but there's still so much work to do. But stepping on, I guess I wanted to think about um, monuments and architecture in my own history. So I started looking back at the albums of my parents and I saw these amazing images of them, you know, sort of posing in front of um, key monuments in sort of European and Anglophone history. So these are from their honeymoon. And they reminded me of the work of the Hong Kong-born artist Zhong Guangzhi and his incredible series East Meets West. Um, Zhong Guangzhi, he's no longer um, alive. He died of AIDS in 1990, but he was a friend and contemporary of Warhol and Haring in New York. Um, and he made this incredible body of work. Um, I think he, tr he made sort of 100 or so pictures around um, the US and Europe. Um, so the legendary story of, of this series is that Zhang Guangzhi was um, visited by his parents in New York and they wanted to take him out to dinner so they took him out to a, a restaurant called Windows on the World and he had no um, fancy clothing because he was a povo artist. So all he could find was um, this mouse suit which he pulled out of the wardrobe and he put it on and they went out for dinner and um, all of the weight stuff was so sort of um, 
you know, they just treated him with such kind of uh, concern and looking out for his, his every wish and I think they thought that he was a foreign dignitary from China. Um, and he loved this. He's like, wow, I can, really, I can really work this. So he started using the suit in his performances. And you can see maybe on the, he's got a lapel, like a kind of lanyard thing. Um, it actually read Slut for Art, like it didn't have a kind of name. It just said Slut for Art, but no one looked close enough to actually realise that he was totally taking the piss. And I kind of loved... Um, you know, how he sort of exploited this idea of foreignness and stereotypes in his work to really kind of, um, yeah, I guess, subvert what people thought. And I looked for the same spirit of, I guess, the foreign in my own work. Um, so my parents, they moved to Australia in 1973. It was the final years of the white Australia policy and Dad was able to come over because he was a GP. He was able to get some work in regional Queensland. Um, they moved to Melbourne a year later and this is them in front of the vault. They have this amazing yellow Allen's bag, which is just so spot on. Um, and this photo was taken in the original city square in 1980. This is the work um, as it kind of evolved into a project called Yellow Peril, um, an exhibition that I showed at Bus Projects in 2015. And I guess um, I sort of came to adopt this symbol. So in a way it has nothing to do with race and xenophobia, but just in that sort of casual, everyday sort of racist moniker, um, a lot sort of collided for me when I saw that image of my parents and it was a way for me to sort of explore all of these things within um, the one work. And then full cycle, this is mum and dad at the Melbourne Town Hall where the work is, um, however many, 30, 40, many years later, um, which is a nice feeling to think that you can kind of go full cycle. And this is it as a production still from the work from um, The Australian Ugliness. And I'll play a little clip, I'm almost done, um, from The Australian Ugliness where you'll kind of see this vault sort of appear and reappear.
guess you can kind of see that I'm trying to trace conversations across time and space and different architecture as well and trying to sort of bring to light um, this language or this sort of like conversation that is there that um, maybe outside the profession of architecture it's a bit hidden to us or something and trying to make this conversation more public so that it can be one that's equally shared and understood and something that we can engage with. So I can't help but see um, Yellow Peril and the Australian ugliness everywhere now. But I guess I see myself now as an agent within these architectures and a bit more able to make these spaces my own. Thanks for coming on the journey. Um, we have time for a few questions. If um, anyone has a burning question for Eugenia, well, I might start then. <laughs> I was um, well. First, thank you for your talk. It was really fascinating, and I was thinking about the relationship between the content of your work and the form, and how you um, use performance, and the way you also referenced um, the history of cinema and um, and video art. Um, could you tell us a bit more about your, um, your thoughts and how you came to make those decisions? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think I often think about my work um, in terms of being quite a mongrel practitioner. Like, I don't really have one form that I use all the time. I mean, I definitely use video a lot and performance has come into that, but... I think um, it's about sort of that's both the strangeness and the familiarity in things. So the way that I guess with video you can sort of trace those connections um, in a way that sort of brings them out, draws them out. And with the performance aspect, um, I guess I've been using myself and my work for some time, but with this one, because it is so much about, I guess, diversity and about um, inserting like a broader picture of what Australia might be. Um, it's when I thought to, or really wanted to work with performers. Um, so I worked with the choreographer Nat Curcio um, and some really incredible dancers and, and artists from, from Melbourne to sort of tease these things out more in a way that sort of went beyond what I could do. Um, that idea of, I guess, Tati's language without words. Um, for me, it was in this instance sort of thinking about embodied language or how people can move through space and move through space in unpredictable ways as well. Um, so I guess once I realised that it was much larger than me, than that one character, that's when the idea of kind of bringing in dance and choreography and costume as well came into it. So. I think often when I make work, once I have figured out the kind of logic of what it needs to be, what, yeah, how large it needs to be or whatever, um, then the rest sort of follows, yeah. Do we have any other questions? Hi, Eugenia, great presentation. And I actually was lucky enough to see your insight on-site situ fishbowl. So <laughs> thank you for that. Thanks. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about your funding journey for this? I mean, working across different media, you had, I know that you had some public component and then you received some other government funding, is that right? Like, I mean, it's challenging, so it would be great to understand a little bit about your journey. Sure, um, yeah, that was the, that was 
I guess the largest mountain to overcome was how to make this thing. Um, I it's sort of been a two or three year in the making work. So the first year I applied for lots of funding and got so many rejection letters because <laughs> maybe because I didn't really know what the work was going to be yet. And then after that, there was lots of brokering of partnerships. So the project was, um, I guess, conceived in collaboration with Open House Melbourne. Um, and that idea of sort of bringing architecture to the people and bringing art to the people, I guess, in a way, um, taking it beyond kind of traditional gallery spaces. Um, I guess once those partners came on board, then it became easier to sort of be legit and, um, you know, started to receive government funding and then everything was sort of negotiation. So with Melbourne School of Design, they came on board as a sponsor. But it was sort of, you know, two years of like pounding the pavement, talking to people, trying to convince them of this madness. Um, and then gradually as each, you know, each person came on board, that would lead to another, you know, another kind of funder. Um, but yeah, there was a component of crowdfunding. There was, um, you know, state city, federal funding, government funding, and then um, sort of sponsorship from, um, you know, the building industry and things like that. So, yeah, a lot of hustling. Well, thank you, Eugenia, and um, please, everyone, join me in um, thanking Eugenia for her talk. Thanks, everyone. listening to an ACCA podcast recorded by ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne. To listen to more from us, subscribe to ACCA on Apple Podcasts or follow ACCA on SoundCloud. To find out more about our exhibitions and programs, visit acca.melbourne and sign up to our mailing list.